Big news from the literary world. Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the company that's charged with protecting Dr. Seuss's legacy, announced this morning that six Dr. Seuss books will stop being published because of their racist and insensitive imagery. The books in question are, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, Scrambled Egg Super, McGillicott's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, The Cat's Quizzer, and Green Eggs and Matt Lauer. <laughs> After reviewing the contents of the Dr. Seuss catalog, Dr. Seuss Enterprises made the decision to cut out certain books, saying in a statement that ceasing sales of these books is only part of our commitment to ensure Dr. Seuss Enterprises catalog represents and supports all communities and families. It's a responsible move on their part. There hadn't been an earth-shattering outcry, but they recognize the impact that these images might have on readers, especially kids, and they're trying to fix it because Dr. Seuss books should be fun for all people. Black, white, straight, gay, sneeches, both star-bellied and plain, Loraxes, Barbaloots, all the Who's down in Whoville, and the strange, angry creature named Fufu the Snoo. And it's especially important to be responsive like this because Dr. Seuss has also so many books that are lovely and teach vital lessons that resonate to this day. Horton Hears a Who is about listening to underrepresented voices. The Butter Battle Book teaches tolerance. The Lorax teaches environmental ethics. And Hop on Pop warns against the dangers of pop hopping. The next thing the pops might be is Aorta. And I can understand why they're pulling a small number of his books if I Ran the Zoo shows racist depictions of Asian characters, saying they're from countries no one can spell. So China, too difficult to spell. But Sola Salu spells like it sounds. The Dr. Seuss folks listened to criticism, thought it was reasonable, and made what's called a change. Or as it's known on Fox News, cancel culture. Dr. Seuss essentially has been canceled. They want to cancel Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss should not be canceled in your home. There's no place that they won't go. They're canceling Dr. Seuss from right. reading programs. I mean, these are books I literally know the cat in the hat by heart without the book there. I'm not surprised Don Jr. loves cat in the hat. I've always believed he can read at a second grade level. Also, I think his dad calls him and Eric thing one and thing two. But if you're worried about these children's books being removed from the shelves, we here at A Late Show have just the book for you. It's Oh, the Books You Can Read. Ahem. Ahem. So the book news you heard today just got your goose, and now you're defensive for old Dr. Seuss. If you find that your bookshelf just got a little bit duller, consider these kids' books from people of color. Hello, and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. I've been trying to put together a podcast about Dr. Seuss all week. However, the man is such a weird, confounding figure that it's been difficult. We should examine both the art and the life of Dr. Seuss. Art is manifested through the mind and the body, pure human expression. Before we start with the art, let's explore some exposition. Seuss was born as Theodore Geisel in Springfield, Massachusetts on March 2, 1904, to a wealthy German brewing family. While part of Troop 13, it is said that Geisel was humiliated as a Boy Scout by none other than Teddy Roosevelt. According to the New England Historical Society, young Ted Geisel belonged to Boy Scout Troop 13, which undertook a war bond drive. He walked from house to house selling war bonds. His grandfather, a well-to-do brewer, bought $1,000 worth of bonds from his grandson. 
That made Ted one of the top-selling scouts in Springfield. Ted and nine other scouts were to receive an award from former President Theodore Roosevelt in May 1918. They lined up on the state of Springfield's Municipal Auditorium, awaiting their award. Ted was last. Roosevelt handed each boy an award, and then he got to Ted. Someone had made the mistake and given the former president only nine awards. It was an embarrassing situation, and Roosevelt made it worse. What's this boy doing here, he said loudly. Ted, mortified, was hustled off the stage. From then on, fear of appearing before an audience became a phobia with Ted Geisel. His biographer, Thomas French, suggests he moved to a lonely mountaintop in La Jolla, California, to avoid crowds and the possibility of a neighbor asking, what's he doing here? The family brewing business went under during Prohibition, but his father became the superintendent of parks in 1931. According to SeussInSpringfield.org, in 1931, Ted's father became the superintendent of parks for the city of Springfield. His job included running the Forest Park Zoo. While Ted was a boy, his father used to regularly bring him and his sister Marnie to Forest Park to walk the trails, fish, and visit the zoo. The park was just a few blocks from their home on Fairfield Street. Young Ted often brought along a sketch pad to draw. These visits may account for the incredible variety of animals later depicted in the books by Dr. Seuss. Henrietta Seuss, Ted's mother, was the daughter of Bavarian immigrants. At the age of 15, Nettie, as she was called, gave up her hope of attending college and began working in the family bakery. Her thwarted desire to go to college made her intent on making sure that Ted and his sister Marnie were able to acquire a higher education. Ted's mother would sing her children to sleep with the rhythmic chant that she used to sell pies, apple, mince, lemon, peach, apricot, pineapple, blueberry, coconut, custard, and squash. I think I probably did that one wrong, but Ted later said that his mother played an important role in developing his interest in rhythm, rhyme, and words. He would later adopt her maiden name Seuss, which means sweet in German. In the 20s, Seuss attended Dartmouth. According to DrSeussArt.com, in 1921, Ted made the train trip to Dartmouth with 16 other graduates from Springfield's Central High School. Their English teacher, Edwin Red Smith, a recent Dartmouth grad, had rallied them for his alma mater with his energetic style and affable ways. That core group and the new friendships they forged at Dartmouth made the students in the class of 25 remarkably loyal to one another and to the college. The highlight of Ted's four years at Dartmouth was being a contributor and then editor of the Jack-O-Lantern, the college's humor magazine. In April of his senior year, there was a disturbance involving ten buddies sharing a single pint of gin in his room. It was still the early years of prohibition, and there had to be consequences. As part of his punishment, Ted was removed as editor of the Jack-O-Lantern. Shortly thereafter, he started using his mother's maiden name, Seuss. In the surprisingly radical politics of Dr. Seuss for the BBC, Fiona MacDonald writes about his time at PM Magazine. It was there that he would produce propaganda urging Americans to go to war and buy war bonds. MacDonald writes, 
Between January 1941 and January 1943, Seuss created more than 400 political cartoons for the left-wing daily New York newspaper, PM. He attacked the America First policies espoused by Lindbergh and others, who wanted to prevent the U.S. entering World War II. He lampooned Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and Benito Mussolini, and he pleaded for racial tolerance. Seuss often made fun of Charles Lindbergh, but that is a different episode altogether. I think that though the so-called left postures as anti-war, they have violent tendencies. This actually happens on either end of the bell curve concerning politics. The more fiercely you believe that you are right, the more extreme your views of the other becomes. Seuss was a hypocritical propaganda machine from 1941 to 1943, Urging America to go to war that was created by wealthy bankers should be a red flag to anyone. This is not to say that any of his work should be banned. We don't learn from the past if we don't keep it around. However, a lot of this is just PR. I mean, I guess the publishers aren't going to print the books, but this does drum up a lot of, uh, you know, even in this Colbert clip. He doesn't come out and say, stop reading Dr. Seuss. So a lot of this is just to drum up more interest around other Dr. Seuss books. Seuss was also very much into the idea of internment camps. Supposedly post-war, he went to Japan and saw the error of his ways. He also cheated on his dying wife and said he was actually terrified of children. So why does a band who is actually terrified of children write children's books? I believe it was because those books were partially state-run propaganda, partially Seuss's own artistic vision. He was also very obviously in it for the money, and this was a way to publish his art. This is patently obvious with his war-era cartoons. According to MacDonald, Seuss was engaged in propaganda during his war years. One superior officer described him in an evaluation as a personable zealot. As Minier puts it, he worked for a couple of years with Frank Capra on the Why We Fight series, which is documentary film propaganda. If you look at them now, they're of a piece with the wartime cartoons. From Disney to Dr. Seuss, many animators and cartoonists at the time found money working for the state. It is always hard to say which comes first in this case, but it is clear after looking at Seuss's work that he didn't have any qualms with depicting the Japanese in a certain light. This doesn't mean his work should be manned, but studied. I think that the cat in the hat is obvious propaganda. The color scheme is red and white and blue. It tells the story of a stranger that walks into the children's house while it was raining outside. As a child, this book gave me high anxiety. I asked some other friends, and they confirmed that that was just me. So you decide, or you tell me. You can show me in the comments down below if you're watching the YouTube version of this. What was your experience with Dr. Seuss and his books? The Cat in the Hat was published by publisher Houghton Mifflin. According to the New England Historical Society, in 1954, Life magazine published a study on childhood literacy, concluding that children weren't learning to read because their books were so boring. A publisher at Houghton Mifflin compiled a list of 348 words it was important for children to recognize. He cut it down to 250 and challenged Geisel to write a book using just those words, a book children couldn't put down. Dr. Seuss rose to the challenge and wrote The Cat in the Hat. 
it is still, of course, in print. I find the trajectory of Theodore Geisel's life to be very odd indeed, from Troop 13 to attending an Ivy League and producing propaganda with the likes of Stan Lee, according to Mark Oliver for Listverse. When World War II came, Seuss made his way into the Army, not with a gun, but with a pen. He soon found himself working side by side with Marvel's Stan Lee, sketching up pamphlets that warned soldiers about the dangers of catching venereal diseases abroad. Seuss also worked with Chuck Jones, the director behind Looney Tunes. He was a part of a team making propaganda videos for soldiers. Their most famous was the Private Snafu series, named for the phrase, Situation Normal, All Effed Up. Seuss called himself subversive. MacDonald writes, In Jonathan Katz's 1983 collection of interviews, Pipers at the Gates of Dawn, Seuss said in response to the suggestion that some of his books are subversive, I'm subversive as hell. I've always had a mistrust of adults. Hilaire Belloc, whose writings I liked a lot, was a radical. Gulliver's Travels was subversive, and both Swift and Voltaire influenced me. The Cat in the Hat is a revolt against authority, but it's ameliorated by the fact that the cat cleans up everything in the end. Spiegelman finds a precursor to the cat's red and white striped hat in the headgear on the bird Seustrew to depict the U.S. in his political cartoons. So, the cat in the hat represents America. It shows the mess that America makes and cleans up. Order out of chaos, I suppose. Now let's explore some of his more subversive art. When he was contracted to publish The Cat in the Hat, the deal was that he could also publish Seven Ladies Godiva. Oliver writes, Earlier, he'd contributed art to The Bedroom Companion, a comic showing a lonely, lust-filled woman stuck on an island with a young boy who protests, is it my fault I'm only 13? He was sure that this was his destiny. As a condition of his contract, Seuss insisted they let him write an adult book first, The Seven Lady Godivas. Nearly every page of the book featured another picture of a naked lady drawn by Dr. Seuss in the same exact style he used for his kids' books. The book flopped, and Seuss was forced to settle for a career as a legendary children's writer. Seuss said, I tried to draw the sexiest babes I could, but they came out looking absurd. This book and the number seven reminds me of the movie Bliss, actually, and the constellation Pallades, the seven stars, the seven sisters. And so it makes me wonder whether or not Seuss was sort of putting some occult knowledge into his books. That's just a side thought. Um, but I find it very interesting that this was the book he went to publish. It's a really strange book. I, I actually downloaded it last night to make a supplement kind of audio for this podcast. So this is, I've added this afterwards, but basically it's a book where there are these nude women that have to, you know, learn all these horse truths, <laughs> such as you can't lead a horse or you can lead a horse to water, but not make him drink that kind of thing. And in order to get married, they have to come up with these horse truths. Of course, they're nude, and all of the guys that they're marrying are peeping toms. So I guess he thought that was hilarious. Um, tell me what you think in the comments below. I think the number seven is very interesting. This led me to a painting by Seuss entitled Abduction of the Sabine Woman. 
It could be yours for about 55 grand. The painting is Ted Geisel's earliest and largest oil painting, which depicts Rome's legendary episode at the city's founding celebration, circa 753 BC, during which Roman men abducted women from the neighboring Sabines to take as wives in order to populate their new metropolis. Throughout art history, the abduction of the Sabine women has been depicted by modern and old masters of Gian Bologna's 16th century marble sculpture to masterpieces in oils by Poussin, Rubens, and Picasso. The tradition of a groom carrying his bride over the threshold dates to this historical event. Seuss's version is of a large nude woman being carried off by a knight, which reminds me of Disney's work entitled Education for Death, depicting a large German woman being carried off by Hitler on a horse. I don't think any of this is a coincidence. Both of these men were hired by the state to drum up Americans for war. Money seems to be the prime motive, but also subversion and the production of propaganda when convenient. What are you doing? We're going to untie it and uh, get ready to set her up, put her up. What's her? Well, a cat. When Chris Perfera began his work, he was being eyed closely from across the parking lot. I want to see the cat first. I mean, I like it. <laughs> is, that, is that where the cat is? The yes. cat on the... Yes, uh, on the truck. On the truck? Theodore Geisel has a special interest in the cat. He created it. Geisel is, after all, also known as Dr. Seuss. For the first time in his 60-year career, Geisel has decided to let someone mount a retrospective of his work. It's an honor to you. Yeah, certainly is. They say that lots and lots of people are going to come. Hmm? They say lots. See. Sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. Modest for a man whose 45 books have sold more than 100 million copies in close to 20 languages. Books with characters that didn't exist before Dr. Seuss created them. Characters with a humanity and a humor that have made children for the past 50 years demand of their parents nightly, read it again. I've forgotten, completely forgotten about these. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, they're wonderful. I mean, I, I the curator of the show, Mary Stofflett, chose the 300 drawings and illustrations from Geisel's private collection and two other collections. The show covers his initial career in advertising, his trip through the world of political cartoons, but it focuses on the books he began writing close to 50 years ago, books he says he wrote not for children, but for people. Why is humor so important? Uh, without humor, we'd have nothing, I don't think. <laughs> How did he come up with characters like a Grinch, a Preep, a Prue, or a Nurkle? He says he doesn't know. He has said, though, that writing for kids is murder. He seems to have revised that, though. Uh, any kind of writing is murder, if you do it properly. <laughs> Geisel turned 82 this year. That's quite likely why he decided to allow the museum, in the town he's called home for many years, mount this show. But there are other indications that Dr. Seuss is feeling the flight of time. Dr. Seuss has been branching out. His latest book is called You're Only Old Once. The dedication reads, with affection for and afflictions with the members of the class of 1925. Is this book for children? Well, on the back it says, you buy a copy for your child now and you give it to him on his 70th birthday. Previously when I did just kids books, I would be invited every morning to go to have cocoa among the kindergarten set. Now I get invited to have 
martinis at old folks' homes. <laughs> where would you rather be? <laughs> Somewhere in between, I don't know where. Work. While kids and older kids come to pay tribute to the cat's master, the cat in the hat will be keeping an eye on things. Lorraine Kimmel, News 8, Balboa Park. The Secret Art of Dr. Seuss has an untitled piece in it that I find particularly interesting. In it, there is a beast that has broken away and is holding a masked and nude woman. What I mean by broken away is that he has cuffs on him and there are chains attached to these cuffs, but they're broken. Beneath her is a nude knight. The knight also appears in the abduction of the Sabine women. In this painting, he is face down and nude, masked and helpless. Behind this scene is a creature elevated on top of a house who looks like he is presiding over this ritual. A creature stands next to this one, holding its own head. They are on top of the house, and a person operating a vehicle is driving into this house while towing a creature wearing an antler mask behind. You tell me. One of the other items that I thought was interesting was that he envisioned himself as the Grinch. In The Secret Art of Dr. Seuss, there is also a self-portrait entitled The Cat Behind the Hat. He looks sad and like he is hiding a dark secret. Indeed, the cat in the hat has a double on the inner cover. One looks pretty normal and the other looks devious, if not a little drunk. Is the cat in the hat America, drunk on its own power? In it, we see the cat position the only voice of reason, a pet fish, into a spot where he is bound to fall. Is this an allusion to the rebuke of what Seuss saw as American power? I find it interesting that the cat also has thing one and thing two in a giant red box. They run in and destroy the house further. What are thing one and thing two? Could they be both sides of the conflicts that the U.S. and the arms trade fuel? Probably not, because unlike the cat, the U.S. never cleans up any of its messes it creates. It doesn't even take care of its own people. I think thing one and thing two are pure destruction. A Pandora's box of sorts. The cat then offers the solution to the chaos. I think the most recent example we can think of is the introduction of SARS-CoV-2 and then the introduction of the vaccine create a problem, offer the solution. This isn't U.S. politics, it's global. Indeed, to me, it looks like Dr. Seuss was a warmongering guy in it for the money. This was what globalism is really about. They don't really care about the microgroups they have conscripted and prescribed. It is to keep the plebes divided and distracted. While they complete this sleight of hand, they commit atrocities daily. Back to the cat in the hat. It was pointed out on another blog how passive the children are. Indeed, the children don't react until it's almost too late and still rely on the cat to clean up the mess. It's a pretty wild book. If it's true that these books aren't for children but for people, what are we to glean from the cat in the hat? Perhaps it is to have boundaries and not let strangers into your home? This isn't consistent with his World War II propaganda, but like any artist, if the money is good enough, they'll take it and then create other art along the way. I think there's a reason we know his name. Dr. Seuss was a subversive dude who considered himself on a moral high ground, just like any good neoliberal. So he wasn't really even very radical or, or subversive. He just was playing his cards where he could. Just like Stephen Colbert at the beginning of this episode, 
hawking whatever the dominant culture wants you to hawk. Right now we are in a time of tokenism, funneling authentic rage into dollar signs. Suze's life mission was to impart lessons, not just to children, but to people. He was also a pervert that was terrible to the women in his own life, so perhaps his self-portrait, the cat behind the hat, is the most accurate portrait we have. A man who on the surface cared about the causes that made him look good, environmentalism, racism, etc., but behind this ostensible facade lay a man who had many demons and secrets.